Okay, dokey. Um, I tried something with the 915 a couple of weeks ago, and they were brilliant at it. I tried it this morning again. They were fantastic at it. And now I'm going to try it with you, and you will be brilliant at it too, won't you? Great. And that is this. Turn to your Bibles, please. Revelation chapter 3. And because we're such a highly slick and efficient machine, we haven't got anyone to do the reading. So three people among you are. We have three letters, one to Sardis, one to Philadelphia, and one to Laodicea. And three people are going to be prompted to volunteer to read one of them. Peter Smith, thank you very much. Sold. He's doing Sardis. Who's on for Philadelphia? Thank you very much, Sue. Brilliant. And who's for Laodicea? Thank you very much, Anne. Thank you. That's brilliant. Right. So if you want to stand, you can come to the microphone if you wish. Otherwise, we're going to hear these letters, remembering they're letters that were heard by a church. Okay, so starting off with um, Revelation chapter 3, um, 1 to 6, the letter to Sardis. Thanks, Peter. Wake up, strengthen then what remains and is about to die, for I have not found your deeds complete in the sight of my God. Remember, therefore, what you have received and heard. Obey it and repent. And if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. You will not know at what time I will come to you. Yet you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their clothes. They will walk with me, dressed in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will, like them, be dressed in white. I will never blot out his name from from the book of life, but will acknowledge his name before my Father and his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear. Brilliant, thank you. So he's going to read Philadelphia for us. To the church in Philadelphia, to the angel of the church in Philadelphia, write These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. Know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews though they are not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole earth to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one takes your crown. Him who overcomes, 
in the neck of Philip in the temple of Nicodemus. The neck of the gown you wrote from Jesus. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Thank you very much. We hear the final letter of the seven letters to the church in Laodicea. Um, and Anne's going to be reading that for us. Thank you very much. You did very well, by the way. Thank you. I'll tell the 915 you were good. Thanks, Anne. Church in Laodicea. To the angel of the church in Laodicea, write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. Those whom I love I rebuke and discipline so be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the church, what the, what the spirit Thank you for that. It's good to hear Scripture, isn't it? It's good to hear the Word of God read out, and, uh, and that's how it was heard in those days. Now, I want to talk briefly about something, a shared experience that I'm sure all of us have had in some way, shape, or form, either with dreaded fear or passionate excitement. School reports. Okay? Now, whether you, you remember getting them and you were really keen to see how well you've done, or you're the one who, maybe like this little boy, wants his mum to know that F stands for fabulous. These are some genuine, um, apparently genuine student report card comments from the New York City public school system. The disclaimer is, the said teachers were reprimanded afterwards, but have a listen. These are what they said. <clears throat> and I quote, Since my last report, your child has reached rock bottom and started to dig. (laughs) I personally would not allow this student to breed. Your son is depriving a village somewhere of an idiot. Your child sets low personal standards and consistently fails to meet them. Your daughter's IQ, when it reaches 50, I advise you to sell. (laughs) The gates are down, 
The lights are flashing, but there's no train coming. It's impossible to believe that the sperm that created this child beat a million others. <laughs> the wheel is turning, but the hamster is absolutely dead. Now, thankfully, I don't think any of us have got those ones, but it's like school reports. Now, the school report of church, um, it does exist. It's on a website called shipoffools.com. I only say, have a look at this website if you've got a strong stomach. It's not the most reverent, I'm just warning you, but they do have a thing called Mystery Worshipper. And someone, now this is not a blanket invite to go and invite them, all right? We've not been on it yet, thankfully. Um, someone goes around, some people go around to different churches, and they try and find out how long was the sermon, how hard was the pew, how cold was the coffee, how warm was the welcome, that kind of thing. And they write a report about a church, and it goes online, and there are years worth of reports. Go online, have a look, see if there's any churches that you know. They're quite funny, quite encouraging sometimes, and frankly, a little bit depressing at others. We're not on it there. It'd be great if we didn't. There's some faces I don't recognize. I may have just frightened you because you are that mystery worshiper. Anyway... <laughs> They almost do like a, a school report of how a church is going. I wonder what Jesus' report on SBC would be. Catherine, in our questions for last week's sermon, said that one of those questions, what do you think Jesus thinks of this church, but our church? And a couple of things I want us to, to think about, and when we think about these seven churches, remembering some of the stuff Lisa said, is that these seven churches, the number of completion is representative of the entire church. Now, a church is not the building. A church is not the institution. Holy Trinity is not the lovely building at the top of the town. The church of Jesus Christ is not the church of England. It's not the institution. It's also not the Baptist Union of Great Britain. I'm sorry to tell you that. The church of God is ecclesia. Ecclesia is gathering, a gathering of people. The church of God is you, is me. So when these letters are written, they're written to people, not institutions. But the key thing that Lisa shared last week that we needed to go away with was this fact. And we need to read these letters with this in mind as well. Jesus loves his church. Warts and all. He loves his church. Let's keep that floating in the back of our mind. And the same thing is said in each of these churches that Jesus says to us. He says this, I know your deeds. I know you. And if you pick anything up about some of the background information about each of these churches, you'll see that the letters betray a knowledge, a deep knowledge of the church and the place and the city in which they belong. Jesus says, I know you so I can speak about what you're really like. So the first week we looked at Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, and Thyatira today. We're looking at Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. And there's three things I want us to kind of, key themes that I want us to focus on this morning uh, in our time together about these three churches. And it's these things. It's reputation, it's reliance, and it's opportunity. Those are the three key words we're going to be looking at this morning. Reputation, reliance, and opportunity. We all like to... Um, be liked, don't we? I'll just see if this moves on any. We like to be liked, don't we? Anybody not like being liked? Anybody prefer being the scum of the earth and no one likes you? Okay, it's not going to turn into a counseling session, all right? 
It's good to have a good reputation. It's lovely when we hear positive things about ourselves or indeed about our church. When we hear not, not so good things, it kind of hurts a little bit, doesn't it? We like a good reputation. And that's one of the reasons why stars, celebrities, and, and politicians and companies spend millions on PR consultants to make sure their public image is a positive one. Even if sometimes it's kind of negative, they try and put a positive spin on it because it's important what the reputation of a person or institution is. But there is a massive danger with reputation because there's two things you've got to ask about reputation. Who is the reputation with and what's it for? Who is the reputation with and what's it for? Because Sardis, the first church that we're looking at, it was the business. It was really good. It looked the part. It was probably vibrant. It was probably pretty popular. Probably a lot of people went to it. Well regarded, successful, probably rich. There was a good chance that it was an asset to the city, remarkably. The envy of other churches around the area. But the th- problem is, I wonder maybe whether Sardis, the church in Sardis, fitted in with its city a little bit too much. Have you noticed in Sardis, in the letter to Sardis, sorry, there's no mention of persecution. No mention of persecution. I wonder if it wasn't happening because they fitted. People liked them. They didn't cause a fuss. Maybe they were inoffensive. They were undemanding. Maybe, and this is the worst, they were nice. You know that word that you're not allowed to write whenever you're in primary school? Don't write the word nice. Think of a better word. Maybe Sardis was a nice church, telling people what they wanted to hear. Sardis had progress. They were a progressive church. That's a positive word in our day and age, isn't it? They had progressed, unfortunately, away from the truth. Jesus, in verse 3, says, Go back to how and what you received. Sardis was known for being alive. But Jesus has a different, more penetrating more terrifying view of them. You have a reputation for being alive, but you're dead. You're dead. And the worst thing is, you don't even know it, that you're dead. Sardis lived out on its reputation. It believed its own press. It was a little bit like Miss Havisham, living on its old glories, the city and the church resting on its laurels, totally unaware of the reality of their spiritual state. They had gone to sleep. Now, have you ever been in that situation? It's horrendous. You've been at a lecture or you're in a class. It's after lunch. It's warm. The teacher's voice is basically like some kind of sleeping potion. And eventually, you only realize it when someone nudges you and you go, whoa, ah! because you have fallen asleep and that you have to spend a bit of time cleaning up the drool that's been left on your page. You don't realize that you've been asleep until you've woken up. Have you ever fallen asleep and not realized that and then you realize when you wake up? I'm, I'm guessing it's bright light. I'm guessing you're all asleep out there. Okay, but asleep and not aware until they wake up. And what does Jesus say to these people? Very subtly, wake up. This is the church that says it's, that Jesus says you're dead. He says you're asleep. That reminds me of another story about a synagogue ruler and a daughter who is dead. And Jesus comes along and everyone says it's dead. And he says, it's asleep. She's asleep. And they laugh at him. And he walks in and he says, wake up. And she wakes up. 
the same Jesus is saying the same words to Sardis. Wake up, get what and how back again, or else I will come like a thief. Now, this is Sardis. These are the ruins of Sardis. If you notice, the citadel is up here on an absolutely high um, precipice, really steep cliffs up to the citadel. It was impregnable. They knew they were impregnable. They enjoyed this reputation for nobody's getting to us. They were, had been assaulted many times, many armies. No one was getting up there. Until 546 BC, when while the king, who was called King Croesus, you know, very, very rich king, he was the king of this area, really rich place. Sardis was being besieged by Cyrus and the Persians, and one soldier climbed the cliff found a weak, undefended spot, opened the gates, and the army went in and sacked the city. They were sure they were unassailable. So sure that they started to believe that again. So a couple hundred years later, no one's touching them. They're unassailable. And then Antiochus comes along with his army. And the same thing again. In 214 BC, one soldier climbs up a cliff finds a weak, undefended, forgotten spot, opens up the gate, and the, and the city sacked again. They were unaware of the stealth. They could handle a full onslaught, but they weren't ready for a stealth attack when they weren't, didn't see it coming. So I think we've got some things to pay attention to here as SBC, because the danger thing is, whether we like it or not, we have got a good reputation I'm not saying that from a place of arrogance or pride. Please hear that. I'm, I'm saying that as a place of warning. That is not what we're meant to pursue. What does a good church look like? Maybe it's got vibrant worship, hands in the air, loads of people. Oh, for a thousand tongues to sing. Let's get a thousand people in here because we'll look like we've made it. Bright lights, big sound system. That's a successful church. Or maybe it's the one that's socially active, the one that is feeding the poor, visiting the sick, visiting the, the homeless, people who are trying to change the society. Maybe that's a sign of a good church. Or is the sign of a good church a calendar which is absolutely chock full so you don't have any time to breathe? Are those signs of a healthy church? Because I think that's what we sometimes think of a successful church of good reputation. We, as a people of God here, should not be dazzled by the success of other churches. We should not be dazzled by the success of other Christians. We should not be dazzled by our own success. We've known some other churches who we've looked up to, admired from afar. And then they've ended up crashing and burning for lots of different reasons. Often moral breakdown of someone in the leadership where a respected Christian has just fallen foul morally. Or they've just gone one step too far and they've done too much and people have left for different reasons. There's been division. We've got some good friends whose churches were highly regarded and who've ended up being really badly burnt. Didn't see it coming. And the second thing to remember is we shouldn't rely on, believe, or pursue our reputation. Yes, of course, it's great to hear that there are people who are not members of the church who are pleased and, 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 and speak highly of us and what we do in the community. That is lovely, but that's not the purpose. Yesterday, we went out with these cakes. It was great. We had a sticker on it which said, a gift for you from Skipton Baptist Church. I agonized um, whether to put our name on that. 
for this reason. I don't want to build the empire of Skipton Baptist Church. I want to see God's kingdom, and I think you do too. It's God's kingdom we're pursuing. Um, our previous um, minister here, Rob Harris, on his last Sunday here on his feet leaving service, got us to sing the, or got me to sing this song, um, "An Audience of One." This is who we want a good reputation with, and the reputation for following in the way that he exists. Notice what his promise is to the church in Sardis. His promise to those who overcome at the end of the letter is, I will stand before my Father and I will acknowledge your name. I will say, look at this church. I'm chuffed to bits about it. God, what do you think of it? Is that not better affirmation than some person who doesn't like the church going, oh, they're awfully good at giving out food parcels. Or do we want to hear Jesus saying, well done, my good and faithful servants. That's the reputation that we want to seek. We look at opportunity. Our next church, Philadelphia. It was 60 miles away from Smyrna. It was um, a city of brotherly love. It was uh, named this after King Eumenes' brother, Attalus, who was so faithful and so loyal to his brother, they called it the city of brotherly love. Nothing to do with cream cheese or a boxer called Rocky Balboa. Nothing, okay? It's Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. It was an incredibly fertile area, great wine, lots of vines, lots of great crops, but it was it was good soil because there was a volcano nearby. That's got a few little hazards to do with it, okay? One of them is that it was really prone to earthquakes. And in AD 17, a really bad one came and destroyed the city. And the aftershocks made people, um, in the years to come, keep on going in and out of the city um, because it was, it, once an aftershock, they went and they lived in the, in the countryside for a bit, then came back again, it happened again, they'd go out. Now you start to see where Jesus says, you will never again have to leave the temple. This is a place of permanence, he's promising. But Philadelphia wasn't. It was rebuilt with Roman money. It was renamed Neo Caesarea, a new name. Huh, a couple of verses on, you might read about that as well. It went back to its old name, to Philadelphia again. It was a missionary city, not necessarily Christian, but for the Hellenization, the spread of Greek culture to the barbaric Asian plains beyond it. And there were lots of earthquakes still. Philadelphian buildings often had cracks in them on the walls and the pillars and the roofs often fell in. The people of Philadelphia had a tough time of it, and so did the church in Philadelphia. It's interesting. It's one of those interesting facts. I find these biblical interesting facts interesting. Um, that along with Smyrna, Philadelphia is the only church where Jesus finds no fault with them. Along with Smyrna, no fault. That means it must be perfect. Nonsense. It's got people in it, therefore it's not perfect. But Jesus, what do we see here of Jesus? He is not that kind of nitpicky, judgmental, whatever you've done wrong, I'm going to go over it with a fine tooth comb and make sure that you find out what's wrong with you. We could learn a little thing about that, couldn't we? Jesus points out when things are wrong. When blatantly there's lots wrong, he chooses the things to choose that he feels are important. Philadelphia, we read, was a tired church. It was weak. It was just about surviving. 
And unlike Sardis, and unlike actually Laodicea, they were facing persecution. They were facing significant opposition from a, from a group of local Jews. We actually read some um, Jewish liturgy from that area at that time that actually has in their prayers anti-Christian liturgy. And they're facing accusations from the synagogue of Satan, people who say they're Jews, but actually Jesus says they're not. But in spite of it all, in their low numbers, their low energy, their low, um, their, their low mood, they kept going. They kept faithful and they kept true. They were bruised and they were beaten. And Jesus doesn't give them the stick, but he does give them the carrot. Because sometimes a person can't handle the stick. They can't handle it. And Sardis couldn't handle any more. It's a useful note. Jesus said, a bruised reed, I'm not going to break. A smoldering wick, I'm not going to snuff out. He knew the state that they were in. It probably was not a huge church, maybe not as shiny or dynamic as, as others seemed. Maybe the other churches around, La- Laodicea and Sardis, maybe looked at them with a little bit of shame and pity. Oh, the little sister. And what is Jesus' message to this weak and battered church? He says, I have placed an open door before you. An open door that no one can shut. Even in your weakened state, I'm providing an opportunity for you. Not just to survive, but to thrive. Not just to survive and make it, but to actually grow, to gain ground for the gospel. Even whilst surrounded by persecution and opposition, that you're weak, you're ordinary, you're not shiny and glossy people, I want you to to thrive, not just survive. It is an interesting note and no coincidence that throughout church history, in the midst of places of persecution and opposition, they have often been the places where church growth has been happening at the most rapid pace and in the most sincere way. You list those um, top places where the church is being persecuted now, the church is growing in those countries more than it's growing in this country. It was Tertullian, One of the early church fathers, maybe you've heard this before, he says, um, the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. So when temptation to this church was to batten down the hatches, keep quiet, play dead, don't make a fuss, hide away, maybe no one will notice us and we'll get away with it. Jesus says, I've given you an open door, go through it. An open door where nothing or no one will close it. What's one of the things Jesus said to his disciples, to to Peter? He said, I will build my church. I will build my church. And and what? Do you read your Bible? (laughs) And the gates of hell will not overcome it. Nothing closes the doors on Jesus' watch. These are Jesus-crafted opportunities to go and spread the good news. Not just good ideas, but God ideas. And sometimes Jesus closes down opportunities. We read about it in Acts. Paul was stopped from going to certain places and freed to go to others. Because the doors he opens, he keeps open. The ones he closes, he closes for good. And he says, even your enemies will acknowledge at the end that I have loved you. If there's an open door, 
Go for it. Just go for these open doors. Yesterday was an open door going into town on a gray and murky January morning and going out and giving cake. It's just cake. But it's so much more than cake, wasn't it? So much more than that. Take an opportunity. You don't decide when to close the door, but so often we are the ones who close the door. To that conversation, someone in your work mentions the word church, and you go, I really should, no, I'm not going to. Or a friend is in need, and they're really struggling, and you go, I really should offer to pray, but no, the Lord's not asking me. He is asking you to do it. Don't you close the door. Let Jesus close the door. You just go through the door until he says, right, I'm closing that one. Take the opportunities because we don't want to survive as a church, not just SBC, but the church in this town, in this country. We don't want to survive. We want to thrive, not for our reputation, but for God's. So take the opportunities that God gives us. Don't run away and close the door on them. And the last thing we're going to look at is reliance. And the last church is Laodicea. Now, for me, this is interesting. It might not be for you, but this is interesting for me. This church was um, the passage upon which I preached my first sermon. Yeah, I was impressed as well. Um, 20 years ago, which is uh, more than 20 years ago. Um, I'm not saying how good it was. And what I do know is some of the things I said, I would, re I would revisit, and I'll come to those in just a moment. I also couldn't find my notes, so I couldn't cheat. Um, part of the thing is there's some very familiar words in this letter, aren't they? Some really common Christian phrases. What we do know about Laodicea, it was probably or possibly established by Epaphras, Paul's mate. There's a mention of um, a letter in the letter of Colossians to Laodicea. Some people think this letter was a variant or a copy of the letter to Ephesus. Now, so far, you might have noticed in these um, letters, Jesus doesn't pull many punches, does he? He's not, as, as Ruth was saying, he's not just the Jesus with the blue outfit, holding a bird in his hand going, ooh. He's actually the eyes of blazing fire. He doesn't hold back here, does he, in these letters? He doesn't hold back. He doesn't pull his punches. What's interesting about it, Sardis and Laodicea, of all the other churches, they have something in common. Jesus gives them no initial commendation. The others do get something. They get nothing. Possibly... Laodicea gets the most crushing and devastating comment and words for Jesus. It says, you're lukewarm. You're tepid. Anyone like drinking tepid water? Any fans? One person. Okay, you're a freak. <laughs> it's, not the, it's not the nicest, is it? We're going to spend a bit more about that in a second. So, to this lukewarm church, Jesus says, I'm about to politely... I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. I say politely because that is the polite version. The actual Greek says, because you are lukewarm, I'm about to vomit you out of my mouth. This church that's just waiting for these really encouraging words from Jesus to say how brilliant they are, Jesus ultimately says, you make me sick. You make me sick. Why did Jesus use such harsh language as this? There's three reasons very quickly. First of all, the language resonated with the Laodiceans. Um, 
they, were ra- they lived on a, a raised platform, uh, sorry, a, a raised plateau. It was built around a trade route. It wasn't built around a water source. They had no natural water source. And so they had to have their water piped in through aqueducts from these places, from Hierapolis, six miles away, and from Colossae, about 10 miles away. Hierapolis, this place here, um, people have been there in the first service anyway, Pam- Pamukale or something like that. Has someone been there? Yeah? Very, very nice. <laughs> They're hot springs, hot volcanic springs. So you go there and you lie in them. Actually, I was told they, they come down in tears. Um, and I, I was told by one of the 915 members that uh, her husband lost a shoe on the top. And I kind of cascaded down all the steps. And we thought, there's a shoe down there. And the person got to the bottom, went up and gave it back to them. But anyway, really lovely, lush, medicinal, spa-like hot water with lovely minerals dissolved in it. It was the spa factory. Never mind some of the lovely spas we got. This was the business here. But the hot water was piped to Laodicea. But then we have from Colossae really lush, cold, alpine fresh, almost like Evian on tap from Colossae. And it was piped along the aqueducts to Laodicea as well. But the only problem is six miles from Hierapolis and ten miles from Colossae in the Turkish Asia Minor sun meant that the cold, refreshing water, by the time I got to Laodicea, was tepid and not the best for drinking. And the water, the hot, medicinal, restorative water from Heropolis, by the time it had got to Laodicea, it was lukewarm. And the minerals had concentrated so much that the only use of this water was medically as an emetic to make someone be sick. Do you see why this language resonates with the Laodiceans? We see this effect. These are actual pipes from the aqueduct. And you can see the the minerals caking the inside of the pipes because they were so mineral rich. It made the water undrinkable, unusable and induces vomiting. And Jesus said, I'd rather you were hot or you were cold. This does not mean Jesus would rather we were on fire, raging Christians, yay! And, not, and he'd rather that we were cold and disinterested Christians. He doesn't, want, he doesn't say that. He says, I'd rather you were hot Christians. I'd rather you were Christians who were therapeutic, restorative, and healing. A place where people will go to when they're suffering. I would rather that you were cold, refreshing water to a world that is thirsty and desperate for refreshing. But because you're neither, you're just lukewarm, you are tepid, you may me sick because you're not doing what I want you to do. Why has he been so harsh on them? It's because they have been self-reliant. They've been self-satisfied. They are self-focused. And this has led to complacency and to apathy. They have no need for anything. They say, we're rich. We've acquired lots. We're doing great. Money is a sign of God's blessing, isn't it? They don't need to do anything and they don't need a thing. They're rich. They were rich in banking. They were a banking center. They were very, very clever business people. They, had, they bred black wooled sheep. Now, most wool would have been dyed to make white. They thought, no, let's change it. Let's start saying that black clothes are fashionable. And everyone went, yeah, they're really cool. So then, all of a sudden, people wanted black wool. And they got lots of money. 
They were also well-known, Laodicea, as a medical center, especially for the treatment of eyes. And they had a special ointment from that area. It was well-known that you could put salve on your eyes to help you see. Now you start to see Jesus really does know this place. He really knows their intimate details of what they're like. The reality is that they thought that they were rich, but Jesus says, you are poor, you are blind, and you are naked. So a city that thinks they're rich, you're poor. A city that can make people see again, he says, you're blind. And a city that can make people clothe, he says, you are naked. The city, the things that a city were renowned for supplying the needs of are the very things that the church is actually suffering from. And their fundamental problem was actually the very fundamental heart of sin itself. They've removed Jesus and replaced him with themselves. Harsh words from Jesus. And there's one overwhelming reason why Jesus uses such hard words for Laodicea. Jesus loves Laodicea. You'd think that kind of language is not the stuff you'd use for your friends. Jesus loves Laodicea. He even reminds them, I discipline and rebuke the ones I love. Jesus loves Laodicea, but he also knows where they're going. He knows what their actions and their attitudes, where it will lead to, and it's not good. And he's got to get them to realize it. Jesus' harshest words when he was walking with, uh, on earth were sometimes to the Pharisees. Not because they were like hooded claw villains. It's because they were so close to the kingdom of God, but yet they just didn't get it. And they led other people astray. And they relied on self-righteousness, not God's righteousness. So he was hard on them. He was also really hard on his disciples. Disciples. Do you ever read that? He gives them some grief, doesn't he? Often he says, oh, you of little faith. He calls Peter Satan at one point. He gives them a hard time because he didn't like them. No, because he loved them. One of my favorite phrases which I've come across over the years is this. I've used it many times. I'm not ashamed to use it again. Jesus loves us exactly as we are but he loves us too much to leave us that way. This is that sentiment in action. But verse 20 takes us to a more intimate tactic, one that we're really familiar with. Jesus says, here I am. Stand at the door and knock. The Holman Hunt picture, a lot of people recognize it. I've heard it. Used, I've used it myself to talk about Jesus knocking on the door of a non-believer's heart. Invite Jesus into your heart and let's go sing a song. This letter is written to Christians, not non-Christians. This is Jesus saying he's knocking on the door of the church. He's knocking on the door of the church, asking Christians to open up and let him in because he has been evicted, kicked out, thrown out, and forgotten by them. So they've forgotten what it means and what it looks like to be his ecclesia, his gathering. So he stands and he knocks and he waits. The master returning home, the bridegroom requesting his bride. And he says, if anyone answers, if anyone responds, repents, or opens up, Will he vomit them out of his mouth? Will he criticize them? Will he kick off? He says, no, I will come in and I will eat with you. I will eat with you. Don't let these things happen to us. Don't let us be so obsessed with our reputation 
that we forget that we are missionary people in, act, in action now. Let's not be so self-reliant that we just do the things that we think we can do and we end up in apathy and complacency. Let's be brave and take risks and take those opportunities that God puts before us. We're going to listen to a song, if that's all right. Um, it's one that's been going through my head a lot. Um, has anyone read Keith Green? No compromise. If you haven't, if you want to be spiritually inspired and spiritually intimidated at the same time, read No Compromise. It's an amazing book. But he wrote a song called Asleep in the Light. And we're going to listen to it. And I've got the words on the screen. And then Sarah's going to come and lead us in some more worship. Listen to it. Asleep in the Light. people sinking down don't you care don't you care are you gonna let them drown how can you be so numb not to care if they come you close your eyes and pretend the job's done bless me Lord bless me Lord you know, it's all I ever hear No one aches, no one hurts No one even sheds one tear But he cries, he weeps, he bleeds And he cares for your needs And you just lay back And keep soaking it in Oh, can't you see it's such sin Cause he brings and you turn them away as you smile and say, God bless you, be at peace, and all heaven just weeps. Cause Jesus came to your door, you've left him out on the streets. yourself away you see the need you hear the cries so how can you delay God's calling and you're the one but like Johnny Yolanda he's told you to speak but you keep holding it in oh can't you see such sin the world is sleeping in the dark the church just can't fight Cause it's asleep in the light How can you be so dead When you've been so well-fed